Hello, hello, and welcome back to Virtually Legal. We are back with another three-part mini-series, and we thought, why not start it off with a hot topic at the moment, ESG. Um, so today we are talking to David Alfrey, a lawyer and member of the Global ESG Board at Clifford Chance. Um, I will pass you on to David now to give a bit more of an introduction. Perhaps we can start with some of the ESG projects you've been working on, David? Sure. Um, hi, guys, and firstly, thanks for having me on. Um, so, as introduced, I'm, I'm David and I am with Clifford Chance. Uh, so, a couple of ESG projects. I think maybe let's start a bit in the past. I actually support the Invictus Games, which is probably one that some of the audience must have heard of or may have heard of. Um, with <laughs> Pretty famous one. <laughs> I, I, I should hope so. Um, you, send, you tend to see them on TV every now and then, only now and then. Um, but yeah, I, I've actually been working with them for a while now, trying to understand how we look at categorization in sport for disability. They were the first actually to introduce a, uh, a mental disability recognition in sport. And so that was sort of a groundbreaking initiative that, that we sort of supported them and their work with. But one of the other ones that I've actually been working quite a while on now is the Center for Sport and Human Rights, which I actually helped set up. And that one is actually quite cool. So that does what it says on the tin. It's a center for sport and human rights. Um, and really, as much as I hate to admit this, I don't really support a team or a sport for that matter. But what I did realize was that this is a trillion dollar industry um, that actually has quite a big gap in the way it addresses victims of human rights abuses globally. And when you look at the impact that sport can have um, and, and where that takes people in their lives, I think it was very obviously one that I wanted to invest some of my time in. But why does this all relate to ESG? Well, that's the S, really, the human rights element of it. It's the same with uh, Invictus as well. That is the S. But working on the governance side of these things is obviously the G. And I'm sure as we go through the rest of this chat today, we're going to cover E in many, many different ways. So we've kind of just <laughs> we've kind of touched on the letters. Um, but what do those letters actually mean? So ESG is probably a term that you will have heard like batted about, um, particularly in light of COP26, which David actually attended. More on that later. Um, but David, first off, are you able to give our listeners a kind of like high level view of what ESG is and perhaps its evolution? Sure. Um, so I, I love that you already dropped the COP26 secret over, over there, but yeah, yeah. can we come back to that one? <laughs> Um, ESG. So ESG was actually a term that was coined back in about 2004 by a gentleman named Paul Clement Hunts, who I actually happen to know personally now, which is which is ironic. Ooh. Small world. I know. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting when you meet someone like that and they're like, actually, it wasn't ESG. It was SEG. And you're like, oh, oh, OK. Yours was better. But the truth <laughs> is, it's, it's caught on as ESG. And really what it is, is it's trying to identify the impact of business um, on each of the environment, on society. And when you look at the G, that governance is really the wrapper. Um, and in, in, in truth, each of these letters needs a thesis, even at a high level. But from a business perspective, um, it's quite convenient to be able to package it up as ESG. Um, and, and perhaps maybe um, we, can, we can explore each of them potentially in some detail. Let's start with the E then. So, um, so what do you really think, I guess, the biggest environmental challenges faced by companies at the moment? Oh. Wow, you went for the big gun straight Sorry, away. Sorry, hard right. questions. Okay. <laughs> I know. Um, so I, I think firstly, let's put the E in some, into some context, right? It, it, it kind of splits into two parts. So E has the climate change element, which is really what COP26 is focusing on. Um, but then if you also look at what happened at COP26, ironically, um, was that we also ended up with the deforestation pledge. And that actually fits within what we would otherwise term as biodiversity or natural capital. So the E actually has two major components. Um, and the first part of that, really the climate change element is focused on carbon 
more recently on methane as well, uh, which um, I suppose probably does lead to what has been the largest environmental challenge by companies to date. So this, this really, if we were to break it down, I mean, it kind of varies from company to company. You may be familiar with um, some of the new, rep new voluntary reporting standards, such as the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Um, I'm also actually ironically working on a, a twin sister to that called the, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Ooh. Stay tuned on that one, because that's the biodiversity twin to the climate change one. Watch this space. Um, watch this space, guys. Watch you heard it here first. <laughs> space. Exactly. And within this reporting, there's sort of three scopes that we, we, we tend to look at from a company's perspective. And the first two really relate to things that you can di directly control. So that's things like your, your emissions of the business, light bulbs, travel. I know light bulbs is a small piece, but it's a big, it's a piece. Um, but then we've got the third one, which is a really scary one uh, for, for many of the businesses. And that's how, where your emissions actually occur within the value chain. And this could include things like the impact of your investments, the impact of your advice, etc. But let's not forget that to report on any of this or even to improve the situation internally, um, you really need to be able to capture that data and to monitor that data and to disclose that data and then finally to actually improve on that data. And it is very difficult for a business with large supply chains to know for sure what happens in their scope three. Um, or you know, even to understand how to capture the, the level of deforestation resulting from their products. And all of this really probably is what most companies have been battling with for the last, last 24 months or so. And so I would see that as kind of like, I mean, it's a bit of a spider web and the bigger your company, the more supply chains coming in and out you have and the kind of broader your responsibility is and therefore harder to track. How much responsibility does one company have over their supply chains if they've outsourced and outsourced and outsourced and like to what extent can they be held accountable for the wrongdoings of people that they contract with yeah i mean to what extent is is a is an unknown known uh, let's put it that way but but you know looking at a supply chain and what is a social issue within a supply chain for example right these are these are major corporations and you know, even corporations like Clifford Johns have their own supply chains. We have our own software, we have laptops, tech, coffee, coffee machines, you name it. But, but really when you look at what's going on within these supply chains, there are companies who have several million suppliers. I mean, if you look at some of your major household names, consumer goods, right? These guys have millions and millions of farms within their control or at least within their franchises. And when they hit print on a list of their suppliers just to review it, that list is already outdated. That list is wrong because that's how fast these suppliers are changing. So how do you make sure that a chain like that is properly diligent globally for, for things like human rights, for diversity, for child labor, uh, for slavery? It's, 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 it's very, very difficult. And it doesn't help that we don't really have an empirical measure on what is a breach from a social perspective. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite tough. And then you've got to look at one further step, which is, you know, if you look at scope three within uh, a social context, it's not really something people do, but if you did, what, let's not forget that the human impact created from a business, so there are communities that depend on energy, there are communities that depend on the infrastructure, um, that also plays a huge role in, in access to, to, to certain fundamental, um, fundamental rights that people have, education, water, things like that. And so you touched earlier that you work... Um you work a lot on governance, which I think personally having spoken to people about ESG is the one that is spoken about the least. Would you say that's fair? But personally, for me, it's the one that's the most, it's the most interesting and I think is very central to a lot of the issues. So what are the kind of governance issues that are at play here? Um, you're 100% on the money. Um, yeah, 
everyone likes to talk about governance very generally. I think very few uh, companies have yet turned their attention to it. I think governance is, is in my mind, where all the magic happens. So I'm a governance lawyer. I, I, I love the concept of, of how much can be resolved within governance itself. I see it, as I mentioned, as a wraparound E and S. And frankly, you can throw any other issue in there. Money laundering, corruption, bribery. Governance is right, you get the rest right. So maybe if I can contextualize this a little bit. So I've advised a company um, which in Europe alone had 200 subsidiaries. Um, with new regulations coming in, you've got corporate sustainability reporting directives, you've got mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence legislation. Um, all of these are trying to really make sustainability reporting as vital, fundamental, crucial, how we want to define it, as financial reporting. So the question is, on what basis are boardrooms really making their decision? And the short answer, well, they should be making them through well-informed reporting lines and based on qualitative and expert opinions. But the role of, the, of governance as a whole is, is, is really quite simple. Um, if I can sort of count it out on my fingers, you've really got to increase transparency, increase traceability, increase inclusivity, and you want to make sure that whoever's making the decisions is accountable for their decisions. So a solid governance structure can provide probably most boardrooms with a strong defensible position if challenged by stakeholders, regulators, courts, um, whomever. But it also makes it a lot harder for the decision makers to make the decisions that have a negative impact on stakeholders of a company, because obviously at that point they can be challenged and it's quite visible as to how they reach their decisions. Okay, so it's like it's like an accountability point in that way. Because everything is so transparent, it's very easy to hold them accountable. Yeah. Whereas if it's a bit more smoke and mirrors, you end up having more problems. Yep, and I would also suggest just on that one, but without without transparency, you're struggling with with accountability, and without accountability, there's little value to having the transparency. So I do think it's sort of a not to use the DJ analogy, but it's like spinning a few wheels in certain directions to make it all sound perfect. That is governance for you, though. Would you say? shareholder pressure is as strong as I guess it's made out to be or is it more pressure to I guess being f not forced but legally held accountable you guys really are asking the tough questions today okay <laughs> so um where do I start so let me, let me let me put this into maybe a sequence in my mind anyway I like to I like to put in things into some form of level of importance, if I may, which is, I think there are sort of four main drivers. Um, I, I, I don't know why I'm stuck to this number four, but we're going to go with it. There's four main drivers <laughs> here. You've got your value destroying reputational risk. So that's really, again, what it says in the tin. It's, it's your value of your reputation, your your intellectual property, your your, your um, non-fixed assets, essentially. So how, how does the market perceive you? You then obviously have your beneficiaries and your consumer demands. So there's obviously a, a, a younger generation that's now far more literate in in, um, in climate and social issues. And so they are demanding more responsible products. Um, so that that's obviously a, a, a key driver for many of the businesses that face consumers. Then you've got competitors. And this is an interesting one because we obviously have the front runners who are really out there and making change. And then you've got sort of those who are seeing how that goes for them and then following on. But the competitive pressure does drive this. And finally, you know, being a lawyer, I have to have this on the list. And I definitely think it's an important <laughs> one. But I think it's been a little bit slow to the party, which is your legal and reg uh, regulatory um, requirements. And that's sort of the, the reporting requirements. That's sort of the disclosure requirements that goes into compliance issues um, and, and all the other 
all the other issues. But really taking it back one step to your question on what about the stakeholders and the shareholders, they play a massive role. And I think they play a massive role across all four of these. So even just looking at the legal, rather than calling legislative, but legal um, requirements, if a shareholder passes an, a resolution at a shareholders meeting, what you end up with is a binding obligation on the board of directors to do what the shareholders have asked to do. And that becomes a legal requirement that's placed on the company. So even even if you discounted the other three elements, you know you still sort of land up in the same space where, where you are using the stake the stakeholder power. And I like to use the word stakeholder rather than shareholder, but the stakeholder power to really drive and influence some of the decisions they're making. But honestly, we speak from a very European and UK perspective because globally there's a big variance in how active your shareholders and stakeholders really are. So it would be, in my opinion, it would probably be a, a strong combination to challenge any board with all four of these. And it's quite common to see all four of them being used to challenge because as a cumulative driver, you have to remember that your stakeholders and shareholders are not actually from the same group of people and they don't often have the same interests. So they're all looking to make money. That's common. Everything else in it is less so. Some is um, one's a pension, one's a private equity, one's, a, one's an NGO. It, it could be a high net worth individual. Everyone just has their own interests. And so the four elements together combined and unified make it very difficult for any board to try and understand what their what their next step is. That said, um, some boards and have done this really well, where they've actually sort of engaged in open dialogue. They've actually had stakeholder engagement exercises where they talk to their, their shareholders and stakeholders as to why they're making certain decisions. Some companies have existed for two to 300 years, right? So for them, they're like, this is a one-year plan. I'm not going to be pressured into doing this because I want to exist for the next 200 years. So let us let me tell you what our plan is and let's see what you think about it. So that engagement does sort of create a safe space for open and, and really, um, really productive discussions. And where do you think, um, into that kind of matrix of four things that you've just listed, where do you think investment fits into that with the rise of things such as um, green bonds and people... Um, using like scoring metrics to grade companies on their ESG performance and things like that. How much do you think that is shaping the market and behavior? It's again, it's I would say global variance again. It's 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 sort of one that it is all of this information, right? Is data that we've never considered before. It's never been available before. Even if you look at things like the IPCC report that was published in July this year, really what it's done is for the first time in history, you've empowered people and enabled people to actually access public peer-reviewed science that has been funded by the COP parties. And what that does is it creates a global standard of science which can now be used. Historically, what you'd have is sort of your your NGOs and stakeholder activity would sort of run out of funding along the way because it'd be quite tough to access that kind of detail. But we've actually changed the conversation quite substantially. So all of this is new information and a lot of this information is driving behavior, but I don't think it would be fair to say that that alone is doing it. And I also don't think, and actually, uh, maybe I should come to it now. I mean, one of the, the challenges that that I like to, to raise when I talk about ESG is, is one around just transition. And it's a term that's not been used very frequently yet. But, you know, again, stay tuned. I'm going to make it a thing. Um, <laughs> what you are seeing is that there are now an increasing list of challenges or in clashes, I should say, between the E and the S, between the S and the G. Uh, where you are sort of going one against the other. And so for a lot of companies who act globally, they've got global policies. Yeah, sure. But you can't necessarily implement a global policy at every jurisdiction the same way. So you might be headquartered, for example, in, in London, 
and um, London's a very liberal state. It's a very liberal country. But I'm I'm talking to you guys from Pakistan right now. But you know, over here, if you try to implement a policy that was drafted in London for a London market, it would just not work. And that's because the reality on the ground and the way people's lives are impacted in different parts of the world can be quite challenging. So often what you are seeing is that there are global policies, but when it comes to how that's implemented, this is where we need more science and more research because that's where S meets E, and that's where you actually find out what, whether what you are trying to do is actually, you know, as a term that was used very frequently in COP, are you doing net zero for mathematics purposes, which is just bring carbon to zero, mm. or are you doing net zero for resilience purposes, which is bring it down as far as we can, but remember the people who are actually trying to feed their families and who are vulnerable to climate disaster and climate change, who are without education and below the poverty line, remember them as well. So I think all of this is actually forming much more sophisticated ones. The international aspect is interesting and it's something that we've picked up on on a previous episode with Wendy Ramshaw when she came on to talk about diversity and inclusion and she made she made essentially mm-hmm. the same point that you know you couldn't have some of our policies on say gay rights that you do in the UAE it just it wouldn't yeah, work. It's, yeah it, it's not only that it wouldn't work it would actually be detrimental to people and I think that that is you know there, there has to be a degree of of balance in the in the discussion. And that's where things get really difficult. And I think that's where we need all the players on the table to sit down and, and put their heads together as to how this is going to happen. So it's really good when you have conferences like COP, which actually say the states are making a decision. And that's great. But then you need businesses to implement those decisions. And you need to have citizens to hold the businesses and the states accountable. And you need to be able to then say within all of the structure, do we actually have regulators and legislation that creates level playing fields, that allows for free trade, that allows for free movement of labor, that allows for expressions and freedoms? Um, Are there human rights that are actually being considered and fully respected globally, irrespective of whether the national legislation does it? Um, And these are all very, 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 very difficult questions to answer. Um, which is why I, I absolutely love it because I think that, you know, as a lawyer, this is, this is what I signed up for. This is, this is fun. And that's the end of part one. In part two, David is going to talk us through some recent examples of where companies have fallen down on their ESG compliance. And we're going to see what law firms can do to help companies meet their obligations.